0: We'll still be afraid. I don't believe we're gonna, ever going to eliminate the fear, but we're going to move forward in spite of the fear. I am unwilling to give up.
1: That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to
0: get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited for my next guest. I have John Hagel here, who is a legend. He is the founder of Beyond Our Edge, and we're going to talk a bit about his new incredible book uh, that he wrote as well. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a brief intro on John. John is actually a fellow Marin County resident. And uh, you all know that that's where I am coming from. And he spent 40 years in Silicon Valley, has amazing experience as a management consultant at some of the biggest firms out there, really guiding a lot of CEOs and sort of the agenda that they would have going on overall. But the Deloitte Center for the Edge, if anyone is familiar with this incredible uh, place, he was actually the founder and chairman of that uh really really incredible and john is also the author of not one book as i am but eight books incredible uh and best-selling books including his most recent book the journey beyond fear and so you all know how i feel about fear and how i feel about knocking it down and so we're we're definitely on the same page on on this Uh, He's won two awards from Harvard Business Review for Best Articles. He's also been highlighted as a leader by amazing institutions, including the World Economic Forum, as well as Business Week. And so we are so excited to have John here. Thank you so much for coming on, John.
0: It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation for sure.
1: Absolutely. So, tell me a little bit about John. Like, did you always know that you were going to be an infa- a founder and and sort of have the legacy that you have? Or tell me a little <laughs> bit about you as a kid.
0: No. Well, as a kid, uh, I grew up in a different country every year, um, so I had a global upbringing, um, and uh, I was actually in a dysfunctional family. Uh, my mother had huge anger issues and she would go in tirades and I lived most of my childhood in fear. My father retreated. He didn't want to intervene. And so I did felt like I didn't have anybody to uh, protect me or, um, and because I was in a different country every year, there was no extended family or, um, network of friends that could help. So, uh, it was a challenging, uh, Challenging childhood, for sure.
1: Were your parents diplomats, or what What were your parents doing?
0: No, my father worked for a large oil company, and he loved, okay. inter- loved international work. Every year, he'd ask for a new assignment, and most years, he'd get it. And so he was on the marketing side, so we weren't in the producing countries. It was largely Latin America and, uh, and Europe were the two continents that grew up on.
1: Amazing. Did you have siblings, or...?
0: Uh, one sister slightly younger than me. So, yeah.
1: Amazing. And, and so how do you think that you first discovered that you wanted to help people? I mean, that is essentially what I take from your journey, that you're a helper. You want to, you know, lead and guide. And, and uh, I mean, obviously all of your books have really highlighted this, but tell me a little, like, when did you really start to feel like you had a gift to be able to do this?
0: Well, I was very young, and I'm not sure I felt that I had a gift. It was um, really driven by the fear. One of the messages I got from my mother was that my needs didn't matter at all, that all I should do is focus on addressing other people's needs, particularly her needs. So from a very young age, it was about helping others versus, you know, doing anything to help myself. And so... Um, when I was in third grade, I took an aptitude test and they said that um, the two things that I was most suited for, one was either to be a priest or a social worker. And I think it just indicated that, <laughs> that somehow they had figured out that my focus was on helping others and um, that those were the two professions at the time. Consultants, management consultants wasn't really a profession. So I was either priest or social worker, and I didn't end up doing either of those. So,
1: so so interesting. So you, you went to Harvard Business School, you graduate, and you become the chief strategy officer for Atari, that little company uh, that was (laughs) just this, you know, I mean, I don't know if it really was or not, but I view it as the, you know, kind of the, the one that put gaming on the map in many ways. And what was that like?
0: No, it was really interesting. There, was a, a, there were a few steps in between. I didn't go directly from Harvard to, uh, to Atari. I, I actually uh, went, first of all, into Boston Consulting Group for a couple of years in Boston.
1: backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year.
0: Idea To um, start a new company in the computer business, um, even though I'd never used a computer before or had any technology background, here I was going to set up a, a computer company. And I figured out, you know, where, where else to go but Silicon Valley to start this company, a computer business. And So I came out here. I started it and built it up a couple for a couple of years, and sold it off to a larger company. And then I was recruited into Atari to become the head of strategy for Atari. So it was a bit of a journey.
1: I feel like there wasn't a uh, roadmap, you know, for Atari necessarily. I mean, especially being in charge of strategy. Did you? How did you tackle that? I think about startups today, and you know, it'd be it'd be great to be able to have somebody to look at to sort of guide you as to what to do next. But certainly, you know, looking back on kind of the early stages of some disruptors that are out there that, like Atari, how did you think about tackling, in many ways, fear, right? About what if we make a mistake and how do we move forward?
0: Yeah, and in fact, I think uh, the key lesson I took from Atari and, and I joined Atari, um, it, it had already become uh, generating over a billion dollars in revenue. So it was a very large enterprise at that point, uh, hugely successful. It was, at the time, it was the company that had gotten to a billion dollars in revenue faster than any other company in the world. Um, but what I found was that, um, and it's become a key theme in, in my work, is that success breeds complacency. Mm -hmm. That the more successful you become, the more vulnerable you become because you become so confident and complacent. You know, hey, you know, I've I've accomplished amazing things. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Don't distract me with any other things. Um, You know, why would I do that? And so that was the challenge that I faced at Atari. One of my missions there was to actually open them up to the potential. They actually were one of the first companies to offer a home computer, not just mm-hmm. a video game player, but a home computer. And I thought that was a huge business opportunity to be pursued, but no, their, the whole focus was gaming. It's all about gaming. Don't distract us. Yeah. We have a computer, but that's just a, a minor thing. It never amount to much. And so again, I think it was really, um, the lesson learned that uh, you can become too successful and then complacent and not really alert to the opportunities and, and needs. I mean, again, the other thing about complacency is that there were competitors emerging in the gaming business, and they were just dismissing the competitors, saying, "You know, they'll never amount to anything." And uh, <laughs> the, the story of Atari it did not end well.
1: It's so interesting. I mean, I think it, one of the things that I've realized in starting my company, Hint, is I, I when we were out in the early days looking for capital, everybody kept saying, you know, if you're really successful, Coke or Pepsi are going to crush you, right? And I always <laughs> believed that, no, they're focused on, you know... Ebitda, bottom line, not necessarily, you know, looking for the innovations that are maybe once they get a little bit bigger. But for for us, the real key was kind of looking around at other people who were fearless enough to go and and start something, right? Versus the big guys. And I think like that's just another great example. When you look back in history, it wasn't. It's not the big guys that you have to really be worried about. It's the little ones that start cropping up and get capital and have ideas and um, figure, what do they have to lose? And I think that's such a great example of, of you know, what what would you say to that?
0: No, I, I've done a lot of research and talked about it a bit in the book on the this notion that we're in the early stages of what I call a big shift in the global economy, the long-term forces that are reshaping the global economy. And one of those forces is intensifying competition. It's just mm-hmm. the notion that it's far easier now to start a business, start a company than ever before. And the large incumbents are becoming increasingly vulnerable. They need to be alert, to your point, to those who are on the edge coming in from, from nowhere to challenge them. And um, again, if you're too complacent about it, it's going to be very dangerous.
1: So true. So you touched on your new book. Uh, let's talk about that. It's The Journey Beyond Fear, which, again, is such a great book. Do you have a copy there for those people who are watching <laughs> it on, on uh YouTube, you awesome. You it's so good. It's like a, it's a kind of a bluish, uh, slate bluish, a little darker than slate bluish, but uh, with some white and yellow print mm-hmm. on it. And I actually loaned my copy out and just realized this morning that they didn't give it back to me because it was so good. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but one of the quotes that I had in here is it, it, that you say it starts with the observation that fear is becoming the dominant emotion for people around the world while understandable fear, fear is also very limiting. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? What, like, what do you think? Why do you think people are so afraid to move forward?
0: Yeah, I I should hasten to say that I'm talking about a specific form of fear. I mean, people are afraid of spiders, people are afraid of heights and lots of things that make us afraid. But what I was focused on was fear that's driven by our view of the future. When we look ahead, do we see primarily threat or opportunity? And the, the fear that I'm talking about is more and more of us, I think, are viewing the future as threatening and very scary and, you know, that we're never going to be as good as we are today. Um, and so I think that, um, Again, in the book, I say that it's uh, it's understandable, I, I, and I should say the trigger for the book was I started writing it three years ago, and every uh, traveled around the world as part of my work, and everywhere I went, the dominant emotion that I was encountering was fear. Um, mm-hmm. At the highest levels of organizations, lowest levels out in the community, fear was everywhere, and this was well before COVID, so don't want people to say, oh, he's just talking about pandemics. Um, but the reason, I think, to your question of why there's so much fear is, again, that we are in a, a period that I call the big shift. And part of it is intensifying competition for all of us as, as companies and as individuals. I mean, increasingly, workers are, are saying, when's the robot going to take my job? You know, am I, mm-hmm. how long am I going to have this job? And Or when is a, a worker from a lower income country going to take my job? Uh, but you know, our jobs are at risk. Um, So intensifying competition, accelerating pace of change, things we thought we could count on are no longer there. And then because of all the connectivity we've created around the world, extreme events come in out of nowhere and disrupt our best laid plans and actions. There I mentioned pandemic as just one example. But combine all of that Intensifying competition, accelerating change, extreme disruptive events—who wouldn't be afraid? I mean, that's uh,
1: yeah, no, uh, it's very it's understandable. Scary. And I yeah. think it's you know, it, I would add to that it, what I've seen in, in running my own business is that it the go to market strategy has changed significantly. So uh, we were already set up as a direct to consumer brand, but that was not in the beverage industry. Um, it was a nice to do. It wasn't a must do. And, and the whole concept of data and, you know, all of that, almost 50% of our overall revenue is direct to consumer today. And so does that mean that stores aren't important? No. I mean, stores are really important. It just means that consumers are also willing uh, to go out and find their, do a Google search or go on Facebook and see an ad and purchase a product. And in an industry that typically was not getting a percentage of sales from a direct to consumer, so it speaks to to your uh, comment about you know the barriers to entry. A lot of people can go set up a Shopify store and and go and do this. Do they have the capital to go and start? You know. Getting, letting people know that they're available online, that's, that's tougher. Um, and then the other piece of it that I think is really critical, is supply chain. How many people have d- relied on Europe or Asia? And, and uh, it, you know, now it's like we've realized that this virus is on a different schedule um, yeah. throughout, right? And if you don't have localized uh, supply chain opportunities... I think you really are at risk. So it's scary. It's scary. You got to actually go do some work.
0: You know?
1: <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, I, I really, really appreciated your book for that reason too, just kind of thinking about all the different things that I even think about as a leader every day. So you talk about the three pillars of positive emotion to move beyond fear. Can you chat about that a little bit?
0: Wow. <laughs> How long do we have? I I know, know.
1: exactly.
0: The challenge is the three pillars, I can say very quickly. One is narrative, second is passion, and third is platforms. But the challenge is that I have very different meanings associated with all three of those. So people think they know what I'm saying, but they really uh, don't. And so I have to explain uh, why I think these things are so important and what what I mean by them. So, yeah, it's... um, I can start with narratives. Um, I I make a big distinction. Most people think narratives and stories are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I distinguish, for me, a story is self-contained. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end to it, the end. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined. It's not about you. In contrast, for me, a narrative is open-ended. There is no resolution yet. There's some kind of big threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help determine how this plays out. And again, based on my own, part of my book is a personal memoir. So um, it's partly based on my own experience, but partly based on research, I've come to believe that narratives at many levels can be very powerful in helping us to overcome fear. And that's uh, what I would call opportunity-based narratives, where we we look ahead and we see some kind of opportunity that's really exciting and motivates us to move forward and call others to help in that process. And I think that we can talk, I mean, the book goes into personal narratives. I think corporate corporations can have narratives. And,
1: and the passion side of it, the second one, the second pillar, do you want to touch on that one?
0: Again, very different. Uh, everybody talks about passion. Everybody, in my experience, has a very different meaning of what for what passion is. I'm talking about a very specific form of passion that I call the passion of the explorer. And mm-hmm. this comes from research looking at environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. I was looking for what could I learn from those environments. And one thing that I found was that in common across all these environments that were very diverse was the the participants had a very specific form of passion. And this passion explorer has to do with you're committed to having increasing impact in a specific domain. You're excited about having more and more impact. And you're excited about unexpected challenges, because they're an opportunity to learn faster and have even more impact. And you're also driven to connect with others. When you confront those challenges, the people Mm -hmm. with this passion want to connect with others to figure out how can I get a better answer faster to have even more impact. So very powerful, uh, I call it the, uh, the fuel that will drive us in the journey beyond fear, because once we find that passion, that really excites us and motivates us to have more and more impact, you know, yes, we'll still be afraid. I don't believe we're ever going to eliminate the fear, but we're going to move forward in spite of the fear. So
1: letting the fear ignite you and to to (laughs) move forward. Uh, And then the last one, the platform.
0: Yeah. Platform again, everybody talks about platforms these days. We all know what platforms are. I, I make a distinction. I, I think the platforms we have today fall into two categories. One category is what I call aggregation platforms. It's all about helping facilitate short-term transactions, buying and selling products, retail platforms. Uh, the other kind of platform is a social platform, which is all about helping you to connect with friends, family, a broader network of people online and have interesting Uh, conversations with them. The the platform I'm talking about is something that I don't believe it really exists yet. And it's what I call a learning platform. And here I emphasize when I talk about learning, I'm not talking about learning in the form of going to an online course. You know, there's Udemy, there's Coursera, all these learning uh, platforms, but Mm -hmm. they're, they're just courses sharing existing knowledge. What I'm focused on is the opportunity and need to learn in the form of creating entirely new knowledge that didn't exist before. And the only way you can do that is through action, coming together through and acting and, and learning from the results of your action. I believe there's a huge opportunity to design platforms where the primary focus of the platform is how can we help all the participants to learn faster together? And that's... I believe, going to be the accelerant that will help us to move beyond fear. Because once we found that passion, we want to connect with others so that we can learn faster and have even more impact.
1: Absolutely. And you talk about, well, obviously, you were the founder of the center at Deloitte, the Deloitte Center for the Edge. What did you see was kind of the biggest challenge for leaders who would come in there? I mean, what what did you think were... I don't know, 70 percent of the people plus like came <laughs> in. And what was what was the challenge that that you heard
0: most? I, well, I think the biggest challenge was on the one side, a sense that the world is changing in a profound way. But on another side, the fear associated with, oh, my God, you know, that my I'm, my company's at risk, my my job's at risk. Um, I, I just can't afford to take any risk. I've got to be really uh, holding on to what made me successful in the past and continue doing that. And, uh, don't, don't distract me with, with new things. And so there was on the one side interest, but on the other side, um, you know, this fear. And I believe that one of the things that one of the reasons fear is so limiting is because we can't even I'll go back to the big shift I, I talked about mounting performance pressure of the big shift at the same time, the big shift is creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create far more value with far less resource far more quickly than would have been imaginable a few decades ago. But if we're driven by fear, we can't even see those opportunities, much less have the motivation to pursue them. So I think the real need here is to recognize, acknowledge the fear, because again, I think one of the big issues we have around the world is that expressing fear, acknowledging fear is a sign of weakness. You don't want to do that. So, you know, just pretend you're not afraid, but we need to acknowledge the fear. And then we need to look for these opportunities that can excite us and motivate us to move forward. And I think for all companies, there is exponentially expanding opportunity if we only are willing to look for them and, and address them.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also, you. I saw you touch on this before about scalable learning and how the entire team needs to be learning and you need to be learning together. It can't just be about, you know, the CEO at the top or the management okay. and not having, you know, buy-in from the top. Everybody needs to be Learning. So let's talk about your new company, or not so new, but I mean, kind (laughs) of new, uh, Beyond Our Edge. Can you share a little bit more about what you do with that?
0: Well, it's just in the early stages. Uh, The first piece was just to get this book out. Um, But my real intent is to create a new center uh, based on the book that will offer programs to help people in the journey beyond fear and to create, again, my passion. If you want to know my passion, it's, it's around this opportunity for learning platforms. How can we create a learning platform that will bring people together so they can learn faster together? And that's my real intent here with the Beyond Our Edge.
1: I love it. So everybody needs to go out and get this book, The Journey Beyond Fear. Is it on Audible as well?
0: Unfortunately, not yet. The publisher's been slow in getting it in Audible, but it's on Kindle and, and print, but uh, for sure.
1: Awesome. So, but everybody should read this. I think like this is a book too that you're going to want to have up on your bookshelf. And, and I was highlighting things. Hopefully, the person I loaned it to doesn't go over my highlights because that would <laughs> really. Really bugged me, but uh, I really, really loved it. it. It was so good. And again, the book is The Journey Beyond Fear. And, John, where can people reach out to you to learn more about what you're up to?
0: Well, um, I have a website, johnhagel.com. And I would certainly encourage anybody who's read the book and interested in this idea about a center and wanting to help in, in uh, driving that forward. I'm looking for as much help as I can get at this point. So I encourage you to go to johnhigle.com. There's a place to sign up for um, news about the center and, and ways to collaborate. But then, you know, I'm very active on social media. I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. So you can find me in many places in social media as well, for sure. And I have a blog on my website. Uh, so that's a place to keep up with my latest writing.
1: I love it. Well, thank you so much, John. And thanks everybody for listening. Give John five stars and uh, subscribe and download. And everybody, uh, if you have not picked up a copy of my book, Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, I hope you'll get a chance to read that or listen to that on Audible. And Of course, everybody have a great rest of the week. We're here every Monday and Wednesday, uh, and we would love to hear from you. I'm on social as well at Kara Golden. So goodbye for now. And thanks again, everyone. Thanks, John. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness.